This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today is the youngest of our young poets, a first book by uh, Zubair Ahmed. He came down from Seattle to read for us today. I want to thank you for making that trip. Uh, Zubair's story which maybe he will talk to you about or not, as he reads, is that he grew up in Dakar, um, Bangladesh. There's a story, I don't know if you saw it, in the, in the New York Times this morning about the fragile politics of Bangladesh. Um, it's a complicated place to have come from. And um, he, at the age of, you were 17? 18 when your parents decided to immigrate to the, how old? 16 and a half uh, when he moved from Dakar to Duncansville, Texas. But hard to imagine what that would have been like. And then he went on to Stanford where he studied engineering and, uh, and, and creative writing and wrote as an undergraduate this book of poems, which was published this fall by um, McSweeney's Press. Very lucky thing to happen to a book of poems to be published by this um, uh, stylish San Francisco press. Um, I'm not going to say a lot about the poems. You, you will hear them, but they are intensely vivid. He writes about um, the world he left and the world he came to and the family uh, that um, he had that experience with in, uh, in the style of, I just wanted to say, he, he writes with dreams. He makes The writing is very plain but completely surprising. Maybe... I don't know who your direct influences were, but one thinks of the poems of Charles Simic, who also had the experience of immigration, in his case from Serbia to the United States, and writing in English a poetry of magical displacement and uh, re resettlement, I guess, of the imagination. And the other writer who I think of in relation with this is the great French poet Jean Forlan, who also creates a uh, magical world out of what I guess is called surrealism, but it doesn't seem like quite the right word for what Zubair does. You're going to get to hear and make up words for yourself. Please welcome Zubair Ahmed. Thank you so much, Dr. Haas. That was a wonderful introduction. I would like to thank Giovanni as well for helping me get here today. I was a little bit lost, so I came an hour early. Thank you so much for Lunch Poems for hosting me today. This is, I generally don't get to read just by myself, so this is quite an honor, and I'm looking forward to it. I always like to start off my reading with the first poem in my book, because I feel this first poem is representative of how my journey came about. And this book is actually about this journey, this journey to find what is home. Like, is there such a thing? 
I didn't know, and I wanted to find out, and that's why I, that's where my book came from. The first poem is called Measuring the Strength of a Sparrow's Thigh. I've been walking for many nights now, heading south in Bangladesh, where the sea churns into a hundred deltas, and the landscape looks like a rotting nail. There is a dead sparrow in my right pocket, and in my left pocket a map given to me by my great-grandmother, a map of my country when it was not my country, East Bengal, East Pakistan. I'm wearing my father's jacket. He was a man stronger than the ghosts in his bones. My shoes are cotton. My mother knit them one evening as she stared at our cat, which had swelled to three times its usual size. I thought our cat was lucky. My mother left its corpse exactly where it died, on the dresser beneath the mirror. When I was young, my brother became a mountain, always closer to the sky than me, always large in the distance, growing larger as I drew nearer. I'm wearing his shirt. It hangs loose like the rings of Saturn. So in around 1999 in Bangladesh, there was this dengue epidemic, which just took a lot of my friends and us by storm. We didn't expect it. There were like 15 to 20,000 of young people infected with dengue. Um, And one of them was my friend who I used to play with and hang out with. He was 12 years old, and unfortunately he passed away. And this poem is about him. It's called Ion. I found a picture of you standing on the roof, hands crossed behind your back, body facing the black sky. It was a hot night. You talked about your mother's death softly, as if she'd hear you saying something wrong. You told me you believed you were becoming the strokes of a boatman crossing the Brahmaputra at dawn, his hands moving up and down trying to become water and failing. You smiled and believed that your eyes would refuse to let light in. You believed a small breeze, small like a child's coffin, would prove your body was made of moths. And all you believed happened. Ten years later, I look at your picture and can only think of rain falling over Dhaka, flooding every street, even the ones that go nowhere, flooding the now empty roof where an old song is slowly ending. The next poem I'm about to read to you is actually the first poem I ever saw physically. Like, you know, you write and then you don't really get, you see it physically when you print it out. But 
by seeing it physically, I mean somebody else printed it out in a broadside and showed it to me. Um, and that was Michael McGriff, who, is, who was my teacher and then very, very good friend. Um, he made a broadside of this poem, and that was the first time I saw my writing in, in some format. That's not what I dictated. This poem is called Shaving. I cut myself while shaving and see my grandfather in the blood, the man, <clears throat> the man responsible for the worms in my garden. The sound of a river enters the room. The water smells of downed power lines and the frozen bones of the morning. Through the window I see the sky eating birds and inside my shoulders I feel a dead horse. A lot of the poems in my collection are short. They're not very big. And this one, if, I don't know if you can see, but... Oh. This one is about five lines. This poem was two pages initially. Um, when I was going through the iteration, my, like, just the review, uh, Mike just took the poem, circled this portion, and crossed out the rest. <laughs> it, it works. I, 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 I liked it. He did a good job. <laughs> this poem is called My Ghost Sits in a Chair Near the Jamuna River. His face looks like an animal stretched by pulleys. He must be the type who knows the value of a bent needle placed on the coffin of a weaver. Family shows up a lot in my poems, but not necessarily the family that I have in real life, but a family that is more living in the emotional realm. Like, like, you know how you have relationships with family and then inside you, you have a relationship with family. The inside relationship is where a lot of the poems in my book came from. And this poem in particular explores the relationship I have with my brother. And, you know, with siblings, he's my only brother. So you have, you know, love-hate relationships. Sometimes you love them, sometimes you hate them, sometimes you don't want to see them, sometimes you miss them too much. This poem is called, Hello, Brother. I pick up an earthworm, and you shoot it with a rifle. Mom screams at us, but we don't listen. She fed us expired milk this morning. Sometimes, in these Bengali summers, when dust sticks to our skins, and the crows on our heads, we bond like hydrocarbons, set mosquitoes on fire, and eat berries whose names we can't remember. We ride our bikes like metal antelopes, like drunken sparrows. We play cricket under the monsoon clouds, and you bowl a perfect leg spinner. It starts to rain, so I shoot down a cloud. We take it back to Mom, who kisses our ears and pokes our eyes. She does that. We get ready for, for bed with our usual battles, and you, fall <clears throat> and you fall asleep, not knowing I slid the alarm clock under your pillow, set for 3.17 a.m.
The next poem I'm about to read to you is about a place that's very special for me. I guess still, because I haven't been back for over a decade now. It was a place I used to go to when I was little. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Bangladesh has a season that doesn't exist here. It's called flooding season. We flood every year on the clock for a couple of months. So during those times, it's actually really breathtaking to go look at the rivers and just see how much power they have and how they can just, nothing can really stop them. Like water, when it really wants to go somewhere, it, it gets there. This poem is called Ashulia. For seven years, my father drove me to Ashulia every evening to watch the sunset. Back then, Ashulia was nothing, a long stretch of dirt road cutting through a wide river which passed us on both sides like someone lost within us. I remember his gray hair, his missing teeth and spotted skin. His laughter gave birth to the softness of my skull and the uneven beating of my heart. He told me to fold a muslin sari, throw it into the river and watch it float away. I asked him about God, under which rock he hides his mansion. He told me he found God on the corner of his cigarette. Twenty years later, his body floated through all 214 rivers of Bangladesh. So when this book was being published, I got a note back from the fact checker saying, Bangladesh doesn't have 214 rivers. I was like, wait, that's what I heard growing up. And then he said, it has over 800. So that was kind of a pleasant surprise. I like rivers. During school, I was fortunate enough to get to travel, to study abroad, to Germany, to Italy, um, and just roam around in Europe, really, and just search, search for whatever I may be looking for. This poem was written in Germany under, I was taking this class, I was auditing a class, I was taking 26 hours of classes when I was abroad, but that, that was technically not allowed, so I was just auditing six hours of classes, and that were, those were six hours of poetry classes, and that's where I wrote this poem. It's called, Most Pieces of a Broken Stone. One. The space between my father and me fills with grass and snow. He stands in the dim light of the factory, wearing a checkered shirt and khaki pants. Above him, stars hang on the sky like leaves. He reaches for them and whispers a prayer I cannot hear. The shadows lengthen and my father waits. He knows I'm gone. Two. On a cold night in Kreuzberg, Berlin, I sit on a bench in Victoria Park above an old factory with two chimneys staring at the sky as if they're trying to remember something. The year is 1876. A worker stands in the corner, scraping calluses from his hands. He thinks about his family, whom he hasn't seen in four years. 
He tries to remember their faces. His job today is to make 500 kilograms of cobblestone. Three. The sky is starless. I believe Berlin is made of light, the kind that comes to you when you hold your palms open. I believe I can give the city a third of my heart and call it home. Four. I walk through a field beside a small German town and close my eyes. I want to feel the wind pass through my body and hear a German crow speak German with the weeds. I've never been here before, in the middle of this meadow, under this gray sky, surrounded by tall black trees whose leaves look like small hands. I try to think of nothing. I try to forget who I think I am. The next poem I'm about to read is actually the last poem in my book. And it's the last poem there because after writing this book, I, well, it, it really hit me when it got published because I wasn't, I didn't think that. I was just writing because I really wanted to. Um, and this was the end of an internal journey that happened to come out in the form of a book. So this poem has, that's what it did for me. It ended this journey for the book. And it's called Concession. I could sit here all night, and chances are I will. The moon lights the ocean on fire. I watch the waves repeat themselves until they become a house with soft lights and no furniture. I begin to sleep. My body is music. I will never have a home. The interesting thing is, I actually do have a home now. I, I just moved into Washington two months ago, and I absolutely love it. I have a job there. I'm working there, paying bills, paying rent, doing what, I guess, people who grow in age have to do. Today I wanted to read to you three new poems that are not published, um, and I just wanted to share with you some newer works that I've been doing that's post this book. Are there people here who like the Redwood Forest? Could I give a show of hands? Redwood Forest? Hmm, couple. Nice. I actually really love the Redwood Forest. I, in my last year here, I went there every week. Um, just on Saturdays, we just go every week and just hang out in the forest. This poem is called Walking in Mere Woods at Night. The roots look like fingers reaching out from the ground in search of my mother's black earring. The redwood forest stands like a gathering of religious men. Inside my heart, a window slowly closes. I walk past a stream filled with books that have waterproof pages. I pick up one, but can't read the hieroglyphs. Little elephants whose eyes are searching princes carrying heavy shields, an old man studying his hands. 
Above me, the night is a dead bird's bone. Each leaf is murmuring in a child's voice, my own from a century ago when my soul was under construction. I listen to the forest with my skin open. I put my breath on boats and set them off to the moon for inspection. The next poem I'm about to read to you um, is the first poem in which I experimented with form. Like, again, I don't know if you can see this, but it's, it's, just, it's in, the, in the page like a spiral, and it continues onto the next page in that same spiral. <clears throat> this poem is called This Inner Hunger is a Wolf. I don't waste cigarettes. I smoke them all the way till I taste the filter. A bad habit, but what else should I be doing among the Washington rains under an umbrella? My world here is small, a cylinder of dry between the butterflies of water. And the cigarette is so charming. I stretch my left palm into the cold, raise a temple its walls running along the dark lines of my frozen hand. I close my eyes. I stare through the window an hour before dawn. I wait because I have no choice. This inner hunger is a wolf in the ice deserts of the poles. Deep wells form around me, and I can look down into the heart of my winter loneliness among the books in my room sitting inside the sound of my river, weaving a home around the small place where I live. My temple is crumbling after a thousand years of night. Soon the windows will glow in prayers, the orange that is my blood mixed with the light shining from the furnace that is my only solid part. I will rise to the tallest pyramid inside me. I puff smoke into the wind whose chariots carry it into the ocean. I'll smoke another cigarette. What else should I be doing among the Seattle rains under an umbrella where my soul is grounded with small chains sewn right through my shadow? I boil in the tar of my mind. I know time is a river with many faces. I understand the value of pain. And now the gate in front of me is opening, its iron made only for my eyes. Beyond it, a world where my feet will grow calloused, walking the million miles to an envelope with a letter to me from... I will read this letter, smoking my cigarette. I will neatly fold it into my wallet, put aside my umbrella, and feel the rain. My life will change, but no one will know. I have one last poem for you guys today, and... 
because, like I mentioned, I was, I'm transitioning from California to Washington, I don't have a printer, and I printed these out a while ago, so I'm just going to read this to you from my phone. This poem is called, At 2 a.m., I was pulled into the chase. I found you wandering the woods with your heart on your left hand, your face looking like you've finally seen what's beyond those gates of light. I'm running to find you before you blend in with the forest and hesitate to return because you know how we'll keep on planting wheat in the dark, how the mountain's shadows will soon feel heavier and the clouds above our cities and suburbs will grow eyes and look at our houses and buildings with red veins slowly gathering near their pupils. Wait for me, but I can't ask you to wait because your feet have grown wild and all the joints in your skeleton have begun to understand how they prefer to grow old. New species of trees will grow on the path you wander as you are lost in the world inside you, which is enough for you, the mind sustaining the body through passages only you can open. I'm running to find you before you forget how to say my name in the voice I know you're about to abandon because you believe in the language of silence, which is what the stars speak in the art of listening, which is what the animals practice. I'm running to find you before you blink that one time and the snow between us melts and forms the Rubicon you know I cannot cross. Find you so I can tell you how your voice was once a rope I used to climb out from the darkness inside me. The night is falling but I will carry it on my shoulders for you and return home through the last air that carries your breath. I won't remember you like you told me to promise. I will remember you said, beyond the black we all become, there is a shortcut to heaven in which we all must believe. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.